And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to begin by observing that for most people, if you ask them, if you ask this person, are you perfect, most people will readily agree and be pretty honest with you, no, I'm not. This was certainly true in the first century. One Jewish philosopher observed, there has never been a single man who by his own unassisted power has run the whole course of his life from beginning to end without sinning. It's also true, not just in the first century, but in our day. Even modern atheists will often admit some basic facts about humanity and reality. One, there is something like truth. Two, there is something like right and wrong. Three, we know we are not righteous. And four, some sort of judgment is necessary. Yet when describing human imperfections, the Bible focuses on something and emphasizes something that perhaps wouldn't be your or my first thought in this area. Human imperfection, according to Scripture, is concentrated in human speech. According to Genesis 3.12, in the account of the fall and the judgment of our first parents and the serpent, the first actual sin following the fall was a sin of speech. Indeed, even leading up to the first sin are a handful of, we might call them, pre-sins, all revolving the mouth. Satan asked with words, did God really say? Eve said with words something that God didn't say. One commentator observed on this point that Paul, when he wants to describe the whole world with no individual exception, is unrighteous and without concern or understanding from God, what he describes is the human mouth. Listen to this. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Romans chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And this wasn't unique with Paul. In Isaiah's heavenly vision, his first impulse when he finds himself in the throne room of glory, which is so filled with the presence of God that the hem of God's robe entirely encompasses the, the whole of the chamber of heaven. Isaiah's first impulse is to cry out that he is doomed. And what does he say? I am a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. That's Isaiah 6. So following this example, the brother of our Lord, James, when introducing the topic of human imperfection in James chapter 3, speaks about the sins of the tongue. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, The Sins of the Tongue. But keep in mind that the sins of the tongue aren't just a problem in terms of 
what you actually say out loud. Actual speech, in fact, is only a small percentage of the words or sins of the tongue. Consider that we use our tongue when we attempt to put our thoughts into words. Even before the tongue and the vocal cords start moving, there is a sea of words in our, in our minds. So we need to be careful at the outset to identify that both introverts and extroverts, people, people, and non-people, people, wordy people, and silent types all struggle with sins of the tongue. You can't plan something without working out ahead of time the steps that you're going to take using words, even if they're in your mind. You can't imagine a scene if you're an artist or a form if you're a sculptor or a piece if you're a musician without in some way attaching words to these artistic expressions even if they're words that you can't express with words. You can't write a letter, you can't send an email, you can't receive a text or send a text without oceans of words going into these very simple activities. And in terms of our emotions, consider that you can't feel anger without fueling the anger with thousands of words justifying this self-centered behavior in your mind. You can't feel lust without describing to yourself, sometimes in graphic detail, how you plan to violate the seventh commandment. And I can't say anything about self-pity or pride without making reference to whole dictionaries of words in our hearts and in our minds, piling up grievances or your accomplishments with a mountain of words. Take a look at what's wrong with society today, and much of it, perhaps even all of it, could boil down to the fact that people can't control their words, their thoughts, their speech, their actions based on thoughts and words and speech. But the Bible presents a different picture. It is not only radically honest, I think far more honest than we're prepared to be about the sins of the tongue, but it also presents a solution as well, which if we're not honest enough about our sins, we're not hopeful enough about the solution and about salvation. We're too easy on ourselves on the downside and we're, we're a little too hopeless on the upside. The Bible goes deeper in its surgery and the prognosis for, for the cure and for the remedy is far more optimistic than we're prepared to receive. And so this morning we deal with the sins of the tongue. It's the 13th sermon in the book of James. We're a little more than halfway through this amazing little letter in the New Testament. And it's a famous part of James. James is writing to Christians, we learn in the first verse of this letter, scattered throughout the dispersion. 
This is Jewish language that's intended to describe the far-flung regions of the ancient world around the land of Israel, but it's also figurative language and a prophetic way of describing the new community of people that are following Christ. The 12 tribes of the dispersion aren't just an Old Testament idea. They're an eschatological or a prophetic concept for the new people of God who are following the Lamb in a dark and negative world where faith is difficult. So he's writing to these Christ followers scattered around the ancient world to encourage them on how they should behave specifically as members of the congregation. What should a healthy church look like? How should we be relating to one another? These followers of the risen Messiah live in a world that makes it very difficult for the church to not look just like the world. And so we find that worldly attitudes and worldly thoughts and worldly words in particular are filtering into the assembly of the saints. And James is on a a cleansing mission. The heart of the book is James 1.18 where he says, you've been born again by the word of God. Now you need to live like it. Not as friends with the world, but as Abraham was, James 2.23, as a friend of God. How should we live then when it comes to sins of the tongue? As it turns out, James provides guidance or lessons in our passage this morning for two kinds of people. I'll call it lessons for the layman. That's the rank and file. It's men and women of the church, boys and girls, young and old, people of the pews, regular Christians. There are lessons for the layman, but then there are also lessons for the leaders, the teachers about the sins of the tongue. So we're going to take a look at both of these two groups of people, lessons for both of these two groups, and see what God has to teach us this morning. Let's begin first by reading his holy word and asking him to illuminate us as it is preached. This is God's word, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed 
and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your holy word. We know that it endures forever. But too often we come to your word distracted or deceived, ignorant or resistant, confused or simply indifferent. So we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures. And certainly, I need your Holy Spirit to speak the words of Christ to your people. So now may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations, questions, and commitments of each one of our hearts, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You have to know that a sermon about the sins of the tongue is not easy. A sermon. Lessons for the layperson, then, first of all. What does our passage have to teach the layperson? First of all, I want us to begin by noticing in verse 2 of our text, verse 2 of chapter 3, James casts a wide net. We all stumble in many ways. James wants us to know that the universal experience of human beings, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, rich and poor, is that we're all stumbling. We're all sinning in so many ways. And the sins or the stumbles that our steps take are concentrated in the way we use or don't use our words. In fact, there's a commandment in the Ten Commandments that proves this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The commandment of words, how we speak, matters to God. And certainly the Sixth Commandment relates to words as well. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, You think you've kept this commandment. Have you been angry with your brother? Have you been upset with your brother or your sister? Thou shalt not kill. We kill one another with our words. We all stumble in many ways. This is a lesson that each one of us needs to hear. By casting the wide net, James, though there is a focus here on leaders, we need to begin by understanding that these are issues that every single person in the church deals with. Then he says, there is no really, truly perfect man in this life. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. The word perfect is also the word mature, if you want to underline it. It occurs in James 1.4, it occurs in James 1.25, and it occurs here. Apparently in James 1.4, the trials that we experience make us perfect or mature. Apparently in James 1.25, the law of liberty is the perfect law. It is that which brings about maturity. And here we know 
that the man or the woman who never stumbles in what he or she says is fully mature and perfect, and that's no one. So as we're learning as the congregation, first of all, the whole point of the new birth is in recognition of this fact that we cannot become perfect on our own, that God has to do something to us. So James 1.18 says, you were born again by the will of God and by the word of God as a kind of first fruits for his cre- of his new creation or of his creatures. The whole point of the new birth is that we would be set on a new path, a path that has, has fewer stumblings than before. That there are fewer things that your foot would catch on and that would cause you to trip or fall. The whole point of the new birth is that you'd begin as a broken person, you begin to be made whole. As an immature person, you begin to become wise. As an imperfect person, you begin the journey of perfection by God's perfect gift. He is the giver of every good. Here it is again, James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift. So what we lack, because no one is perfect in what he says, and because all of us stumble in many ways, what we lack, God provides as a good gift. He provides his perfect word. And as I said, James 1.25, it is the perfect law, the law of freedom. It, it's, a, it's like a mirror there in that part of James. It reveals to us the, perfectly who we are. It's perfectly honest, but it also points out the, the perfect pathway of growth and maturity and blessing and favor and fruitfulness. It points that out. It enables us, in other words, God's word, word, God's word, enables us to begin living fruitful lives for once. In this world that he made was perfect, and then Adam unmade it, and we've thrown our hat with Adam. We've, we've made the world a, a terrible place, but God isn't, isn't settled on that. He's created the community, the congregation of Christ as a place of renewal and redemption and out of the church, which in, in a way is like the, it's like the command center of the kingdom of God. Out of the church flows blessing and health and fruit and life and favor and kindness and love and peace and purity and wholeness to the broken world. The congregation needs to hear this. So the word of God, you see, perfectly embodies the life you are now called to live. It is the perfect word. James 1.19 says you should be quick to hear, slow to speak. This isn't the first time James has tackled the issue of words. And then he says, slow to become angry, for the wrath of God does not, or the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That's a clue. James 1.20 is a clue as to what we're to be about. You are to be about building righteous things and doing righteous acts and being righteous people. You are to accomplish the righteousness of God, James 1.20, and your anger and your sinful words, your fruitless, vain, empty, self-centered words, don't do it. But the Word of God does do it. You're to receive with meekness, James 1.21. 
the implanted word, having, having done, been rid of filthiness and moral defilement, self-centeredness and idolatry, cleansing yourself of these things, receiving with meekness the implanted word, which he says is able to save your souls. So the righteous path, the righteousness of God is the path of salvation, the path of victory and hope. The church needs to hear this. But applying this is not as easy as it sounds. We live in a difficult, in a confusing, in a sinful world which is hostile to God. Somehow Abraham managed to do it, though. He's far from perfect, but James 2.23, I mentioned, he's called the friend of God. And this is the objective. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity to God. You're to be a friend of God. You're his first fruits of the new creation. You're his trophies of grace. You're his objects of redemption. And you're proof to the world that God is real and that he is not dead. He's active and he's doing great things. And so whether you're young or old, when people see you, they are to, they are to be convinced or at least nudged in the direction that there's hope for all the misery of this life. Well, how do you do it? You're to count it all joy when you're faced with trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, James 1, 2, and 3, develops perseverance, and perseverance must, must finish. It's, it's a race, it's a marathon, and you need to finish the race. It's got to finish its work so that you might be perfect. Not all at once. And yes, sometimes it's Two steps forward and three steps back. But that perfection plan is in place because he is, James 2.1, he is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is ascended from his death and from his grave in resurrection power and he's seated at the right hand of God and he's ruling and reigning the church. So the church is to be a heavenly body showing the world where we're all going and inviting you to join me in the journey because there's nothing better than to walk as a friend of God in a fallen world. It's the only way. This doesn't happen overnight. It takes, as I said, steadfastness. It takes uh, perseverance. It takes endurance. It takes stubbornness, a kind of holy, godly Christian resistance to the to the resistance within you, resistance to the pressures around you. But it's worth it. James 1.12 says there's a crown of life awaiting those who persevere and who refuse to quit. And man, the Christian life, sometimes that's all you get on some days. I'm not quitting. I don't like it. It's not easy, and I'm not happy about it. But I am not quitting. Church needs to hear this. And nowhere is perseverance more difficult than with our words. James describes in our passage two parts of the body, speaking of words, the tongue and the mouth. 
And in both cases, he's referring to the world of words that inhabit our minds and that come forth in our lives. Well, the congregation also needs to be encouraged, I think, in this battle, and James does that. We all stumble in many ways, verse 2, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. There's power here. The tongue has a bona fide positive power to direct your life. Just like the rider of a horse sends a message through the reins and the harness and the bit, he or she is communicating to that horse. And it's possible. In fact, it's a system design that your tongue and your words direct your life, your whole body. We're to be encouraged by that. This is a powerful, powerful tool. And at this point in James's argument, he's being positive. He's saying, it's there to use. Use it. He's also positive when he says this. Look at ships. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot directs. It's a massive ship. A little tiny rudder in the midst of a storm. And lo and behold, that pilot brings that ship home to birth. That's encouraging. We don't need massive arsenals or tools in order to walk in the ways of the Lord. We have the one tool we need. It's the tongue. It's our words. It's our mouths. It's the secret weapon. The power is there, no doubt about it. And I love that he mentions winds. Don't skip that. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds. You know where else we've seen winds in James? The one who lacks wisdom should ask God. But when he asks, he should believe and not doubt because the one who doubts, the double-minded man, is like a wave of the sea which is blown and tossed by the winds. James knows what he's doing here. He says, you remember that double-minded, chaotic, crazy, upside-down wave that I was telling you not to be? The tongue is the way that you steer a straight course through those winds and bring the ship safely home. You don't want to be a double-minded person? The answer lies in the tongue. They might be winds of compromise, winds of temptation, winds of idolatry, winds of divided loyalty, winds of hypocrisy, partiality, the winds of hatred of others or hatred of self, the winds of materialism or worldly pursuits. But most of us in the church fail to use the control that we have been given. Most of us, by the way we talk and speak and think and feel, reveal that 
We're more a part of the old dying world rather than this new creation that God's heavenly word has implanted in us and has begun to cause to bear fruit in us. The world which God is creating through Christ is too often an alien world to us. And it's because this powerful tool is used for evil in four different ways. Take a look at the text. It's used for evil, the evils of the tongue. First of all, it's a gateway to evil. It says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, verse 5, and then verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. This phrase, a world of unrighteousness or a world of iniquity, a world of evil, is essentially saying that man in his fallen state, all of us stumble in many ways. Somehow, James envisions the tongue in your mouth as symbolically or figuratively, metaphorically, the entire world of sin flows through that gateway. And it isn't just the world. James says in the next phrase, he says, it is set on fire by hell. So the world is in the tongue and hell has a portal to the tongue. And so the very ills and evils of hell are pouring forth into the tongue, making it a world of wickedness. And therefore out of the tongue, like a gateway, come a world of iniquity into our lives into our own minds and hearts and bodies and beings, and then spoiling and spilling out over everything else. That's the first evil of the tongue. It's a gateway for evil, and it's also, I'm calling it a contaminating evil. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. This phrase, set among our members, I'm seeing this as a kind of, um, it's in the driver's seat. Remember, it's like a pilot. So you have your hands and your feet and your ears and your eyes, but there's Captain Tongue. He's the helmsman. And because the tongue is a gateway for evil, everything that comes out pollutes and defiles and spoils and stains everything else. It's a contaminating captain, and we need to know that. It's also a lifelong evil or a lifelong adversary. James says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, verse 6. It is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. This is the idea that, like the hymn goes, time like an ever-flowing stream bears its sons away. It's this cycle of life, day after day after day after day, the tongue is setting ablaze every single day that you are breathing on the planet until your very last breath. There's nothing that isn't burned or singed by the tongue throughout one's whole life. It's a lifelong adversary. And then fourth, <laughs> I love this one. There are lots of creatures in the world 
And in fact, in verse 7, James mentions all of them from Genesis chapter 1. Beast, bird, reptile, sea creature, and humans, or mankind. And every creature has been tamed, except the beast of the tongue. So the fourth evil here is it's an ungovernable beast. It's a stubborn beast. This is a bucking bronco that even the best cowboy can't put a saddle on him. It's ungovernable. Well, those are lessons for the church. Your whole Christian life depends upon you learning and understanding how to how to manage this problem of the tongue. But if it's, if it's important for the rank and file, for the pew, for the person in the pew, for the boy or the girl, it is absolutely critical for the teachers in the church, the preachers, the Bible study leaders, the mothers and the fathers, but especially the preachers. Every single one of these lessons, the teacher or the preacher not only has to apply to himself, but recognizing that his words create these exact problems that they create in himself in other people. And I have to say, in confronting this text this week, I almost skipped church today. To think that not only does the preacher need to manage his own life, but then recognizing that his vocation, which is so centrally hinged upon the words that he uses, has the same polluting, defiling, evil, influencing effect on the people that he preaches to and teaches is enough to make mere mortals quit. I certainly am before you today as a guilty sinner with my words. The threat and danger of failure in the apostolic calling of teaching God's word is at one's every step. Paul said, I discipline my body and make it my slave that I might not be disqualified in my teaching, in my counseling ministry, and in my preaching. Here I want to concentrate in the second point, lessons for the leader, on the phrase in our text, In verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. There's going to be hope there in a minute, but for now, he says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What are some of the poison of leaders? The restless poison of a teacher. Here is a partial list. Innovations, new ideas, arrogance, hubris, autonomy, independence, authoritarianism, and domineering, 
timidity, people-pleasing, and the fear of man. Personal secret sin, which is hypocrisy and utterly disqualifying. Judgmentalism, mean-spiritedness, selfishness, laziness, oppression of others, using people for your own ends rather than glorifying God and the image bearers that he's given for you to care for. And I think there's a lesson for the teacher here in this phrase about body, which is mentioned three times in our passage. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, verse 2, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The teacher has a body, but a pastor also has a body. So the hope for the minister of the gospel or the Christian teacher is that his words will profitably steer the people of God to their promised destination. The dangers and the pitfalls of side paths and distractions are rampant. But the perfect teacher or the being perfected teacher, the gospel grounded teacher, the scripture anchored teacher, the teacher who loves and looks into the law of God for his own heart and for the hearts of those he leads, will will imperfectly, but hopefully by God's grace, consistently direct the, the body of the church to its intended destination. The same applies in, in, the, in the following illustration as well. A ship, though it is large and driven along by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the pilot directs, the, the will of the pilot there is, is, I believe, an illusion not only for the, the teacher's own directing of the course of his life, the ship of his life, but the impulse, the spirit-directed leadings and promptings, drawings of the Holy Spirit for God's teacher will sometimes by hunches and ideas, biblically grounded, gospel-anchored ideas will, will chart the ship of the church through the strong winds of compromise and trouble. And we've seen it. We've seen it and experienced it when that's not the case, sometimes to catastrophic results. Well, lessons for the leader, lessons for the layman. What's the, what's the solution? I said it in my introductory comments, but it bears repeating. The solution is the new birth. We are born again by his word to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, no human being, I said I would return to that in verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. Hmm. You don't have to. God has done what you and I cannot do. You are not the glorious Messiah. 
He is. He has been raised from the dead, and that glorious title in James 2.1 indicates that he is a savior with real power at his disposal. And so the dangers of becoming friends of the world and polluted by your words and by the tongue are avoided not by our own unaided efforts, but they're they're avoided by walking in the Spirit and so not gratifying the desires of the flesh, to quote the Apostle Paul. We need heavenly wisdom, and so yes, our will is involved, our activity is involved, and that activity is one in which we ask for wisdom. And, but we can't ask as double-minded, so you need to be actively engaged, congregation and leaders, teachers. Actively engaged in ridding yourselves of your double-mindedness, of your divided loyalties, whatever they may look like. True, no human being can tame the tongue, but he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And what could be more useful, more perfect, more helpful, more more better than the gift of the Holy Spirit to tame the tongue? And with this tamed tongue, what should we expect? Love for God and man. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this is not what God had in mind when he sent his son to die on the cross. This is not the world that he's making, where where we're speaking ill of God and undermining one another, backstabbing and gossiping and harboring resentments and being unkind and discourteous and disrespectful, trampling all over one another's property, so to speak, when it comes to our Christian testimonies. The Spirit has given the Word of God so that your words will be used to bless God and love your neighbor rather than its opposite. And nothing shows more love than James 2.14 Showing mercy. The royal law, the law of love, is instead of judging one another, we speak and we show mercy towards one another. How often should I forgive my brother? Peter asked Jesus. One more time. One more time. Yet again. Yet again. Well, we've seen that And we're learning that nothing proves human imperfection quite like the tongue. No wonder one philosopher said, I have often repented of having spoken, but I've never repented of being silent. While the sins of the tongue, which we've been learning about this morning, make this saying saying often true, the reality is, speaking of the teacher, a teacher who is called to teach, to remain silent, for him it is sin. In fact, for any Christian called upon by God to speak, to remain silent in the hour of trial or testing or persecution or in the face of injustice, to keep silent is to sin. Indeed, teachers are called to speak, and they are often described as being unable to keep silent. Paul the Apostle said, Woe am I 
if I do not preach the gospel. Jeremiah was given God's word in such an intimate manner that he described it as like fire in his bones. Ezekiel was told even to eat the scroll and so become identified with the message that it was like digestion. And then, having eaten the scroll, he was commanded to speak the words to an unreceptive people. No matter how negative their reaction, he was to be assured that as long as God was pleased with his speech, that the people's favor meant nothing. And following Ezekiel's example, Peter replied to those who would silence his preaching, judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to preach or not, whether we should obey God or men. So there are times to keep silent, to be sure, and there are times to speak, especially if you were called to be a preacher or a teacher in the church at whatever level. As we leave, then, I'd like to encourage you with a few applications. I've mentioned it already. First, you must believe the gospel. You must be born again. If you're ever going to experience repentance and a change of speech, you need to experience a change of heart because out of the overflow of the heart a man speaks. It's your heart that needs to be changed. And God promises heart change in the gospel, believing that Jesus died for your sins, believing that he rose again in power over death, hell, and the devil, and anything that would enslave you. And not submitting, therefore, to a yoke of slavery when God has set you free would be the second lesson. You need to not only be born again, but speak and live as if you were born again. If you were a born-again believer, you will have the word of Christ dwelling in you. Since that's true, you should speak like you're truly born again. This is how Paul wants you to, to live in Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. No unwholesome word, only that which is good for edification, give grace to those who hear. Wow. I think a third application for us this morning as we leave is that we need to witness for the Lord. And I want to speak especially to young people this morning. Regular members of the church, rank-and-file Christians, ordinary Jesus followers, you need to use your mouth and open your mouth and tell people this simple gospel message. Jesus loves me. This I know. Your witness might not be perfect, and in some cases you might have to wait till you're asked about your faith. But sometimes you need to speak up even when it's unpopular. Finally, I want to warn you. Do you recognize in the fear of God that you will be held accountable for all your human speech? Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Now, this is not salvation by works. Jesus didn't pick up the wrong playbook. No one is saved except by the blood of Christ. Nothing you say or don't say can either make you right with God or unmake you right with God. Nevertheless, we are called to have a living faith, James chapter 2, and this living faith is one in which is evidenced 
by the words we use, especially as we speak to each other, especially in this church. How many words have you spoken, even in the last week, that you wish you could delete or revise or edit? What is your speech like? Does it resemble that of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has been purchased by the shed blood of Christ? Do you speak like someone who has received the word of heaven? Do you treat your parents with dignity and honor, with the strength that only God can provide? Do you teach your classes or your congregation with words of life? May God help us with our words. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you having heard your word, recognizing our great need. So I pray first and foremost for any who do not yet believe that they would hear the word of life that comes from the cross. Jesus loves me, this I know. He is indeed the word of God, who was with God in the beginning. And he speaks a word of love and of forgiveness to all who will believe. And for those of us who have heard that word, who have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, for those of us who are Christ's own people, we recognize that we have fallen far short of our high calling as first fruits of the new creation. Rather than modeling, Lord, with our lives and with our words, what redemption looks like and how it feels, we often picture the opposite. Help us, Lord, as we continue to find our way towards the heavenly city. Help me as a teacher to be a faithful pilot and to watch my words. And may all of us together encourage one another all the more in these things as we see the day approaching in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.